0: Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to this episode of Risking Enchantment. Before the episode begins properly, I just wanted to come on here to give a little explainer this episode is quite late uh, and I think we reference in the intro here that it was late when we recorded it but um, it is much later now as I was going to upload this episode I had an issue with my laptop and it had to be sent away to be fixed and so I was unable to post any episodes for November which I was very sorry about and sorry to keep everyone waiting for this. I am thrilled to be back now. We will have two episodes for December and then as usual, we will take January off and we will be back in February for our usual scheduling. So thank you very much for bearing with me. And I am thrilled to be back with another episode of Risking Enchantment. So now to the episode proper. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me once again is Phoebe Watson. Hello! It's lovely to be back on the podcast. I'm aware we have a little bit of a gap between this and the previous one. You know, we had great plans. Both Phoebe and I were visiting friends in Chicago. And in my head, I was gonna come back from that holiday and immediately record another episode and it would be out in time.
1: Yeah, didn't we think we were gonna record one the day we
0: arrived back at one
1: point? Like we were gonna prep for it on the plane (laughs) and come back and be full of energy and record the podcast. (laughs) That didn't work. I went straight to sleep. (laughs)
0: Yeah, you know, that was uh, such a blind optimism ago that I have completely erased it from my mind. Uh, yeah, so here we are, almost two weeks later, and uh, we're recording the podcast. So exactly, it's, it's all good. We're delighted to be back. I also want to say we had an amazing time on the trip, and we got to go to the Ethics and Culture Conference at Notre Dame when we were there, and we met so many Just wonderful people, and uh, I got to speak to some people about the podcast, so if any of those people are listening, thank you so much for speaking with me. It was such a pleasure to meet you, and uh, I'm just thrilled to be in touch with you, and yeah, I'm really excited for uh, maybe some upcoming episodes of the podcast. We'll see what we can work out, but it was just an absolutely wonderful experience to get to go to that conference. Yeah, it was so lovely. And we loved Chicago in general. We had a great holiday. Thank you very much to uh, Shane and Robin and Ben, who have all been previous guests on this podcast. I think Ben's episode is quite a bit a while ago, but uh, Shane and Robin have been on relatively recently. But just thank you for hosting us and showing us around and giving us a wonderful time in Chicago. Yep. yep. <laughs> Um, So without much more preamble, I guess we better get into our topic for the day, which uh, (laughs) is definitely one of my uh, more unusual topics. I I think I really (laughs) took an odd approach for this one. You know, we're not talking about a single book or an artist. Uh, But instead, we're picking two family films that I don't think anyone thinks have anything in common, and we're sort of picking out a theme from both of them. It was one of these episodes that I had envisaged talking about one of these films, uh, the first one being Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and then as I re-watched another film, in this case Jim Henson's Labyrinth, I realized that they actually had this theme in common and that it might actually be interesting to talk about them together and so the theme that i was thinking of drawing out
1: (laughs) yeah it definitely gave you the strangest look when you put these two together
0: yeah I don't yeah (laughs) I don't think anyone I was searching for articles about both of these films and there were so few of them uh, that I definitely don't think anyone's put them together before so this is maybe a a fresh new take for the world but what I want to talk about is the themes of childishness and grown-ups or maybe teenagers holding on to the trappings of childhood longer than they should whether that's in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, we're going to talk about the land of Bulgaria, which they go to in the second half of the the film. Uh, I think that's the section that's not in the book. I've never read the book, but uh, yeah, that, that whole section where they go to this very odd kind of place where children are illegal, but the toy maker is in hot demand because the, is it the king or the baron? The baron. The baron of Bulgaria loves toys. So... I remember when we re-watched this, I think we rewatched it kind of spring somewhere. Yeah,
1: I think it was a while ago. Yeah. Six months or so.
0: And in some ways it was, it really struck me how if anyone is paying attention to this film, it should be very controversial for our day and age because you have this baron and baroness who are ruling the country and the baroness hates children and wants to make them illegal and the baron is a sort of grown-up man-child who throws tantrums and holds big birthday parties for himself and gets big toys and
1: rides his rocking horse along the
0: corridor right uh and you know obviously that's very over the top and it's camp and it's you know frankly for modern audience it's probably a bit odd uh there's a whole musical number where the two of them are Singing about being in love, but are actually kind of trying to kill each other, or the barons try to kill the the baroness. They're both trying to kill each other. Yeah. Uh, okay. And uh, yeah. So and she's dressed quite saucily for <laughs> for a kids' movie, but in a weird way that makes it even more kind of reminiscent of some of the things that we see in this day and age of I don't know just this sense of uh, a lot of hollowness in terms of romantic relationships. This real sense that you know children are a burden on society and should not be accommodated for and in fact should be sort of regulated away from places like planes or even just the way that we organize workplaces and all of these things or even when it comes to people wanting i don't know i've never been to anything like disneyland but people wanting adults only times for the the space what yeah for all of the The adults who want to go to Disneyland and not be bothered by kids. Oh,
1: come on.
0: (laughs) You know, all of these things. Yeah, I just remember when we watched it, I was like, wow, this is really kind of like damning about modern society. And then we were re-watching Labyrinth very recently. I was showing it to some friends who'd never seen it before. Have a great time. I love that movie. Again, it's sort of camp and weird and tells its story in quite a strange way, It sort of meanders, Uh, but I really love it as a film. But it's about a teenage girl who is sort of caught up in all of her imaginary world and her toys and her books and her dress up and she hasn't really entered into the teenage Age at all. It's sort of suggested that her mum has passed away and she doesn't have a great relationship with her stepmom. But even her stepmom is like, I would love you to have a date. Like I would think it would be a good thing if you were out of the house doing more teenage things. And she's there in her sort of medieval getup. Um. <laughs> yeah,
1: she has. To, she's been out play acting in the park and has to come running back because she was supposed to be back to mind her younger brother.
0: <laughs> yeah, and so she uh, makes a wish and the baby gets taken away by. Uh, the wonder <laughs> wonderfully got up David Bowie playing the Goblin King Jareth. Uh,
1: it's such a as a story. It sounds like it could be so spooky. Mm. Like you've got the Goblin King ske- stealing the child and all these like little goblin gremlins popping around. Mm-hmm. But David Bowie is the Goblin King, and then all the goblins are puppets. Yeah, <laughs> and it's this like wonderful dichotomy of the two
0: yeah I know I think it's great but it's very yeah it is very strange but essentially then the story goes on first of all that she has to to try and get her brother back and so she's prioritizing him and not seeing him as a burden and not devaluing him Uh, and also in that process she kind of has to leave behind a lot of the the things that she's been holding on to whether it's these very overly dramatised and, for her age, overly mature idea of what, like, a relationship would might be. Like, she's reading out these love sections of her book at the start. And, you know, she has to find what's an appropriate expression for her. Mm. But even, like, vanity, like, she's playing with kind of lipstick at the start. And, you know, there's a section in the, the film where she... It's a sort of dream sequence, but she's dressed up in this, I have to say, amazing dress. <laughs> It is amazing. (laughs) And she's sort of tempted to live in this fantasy world of hers. And she has to reject that and keep pursuing her brother. And then after that specifically glamorous section, I think it's really interesting. And this is the bit that I wanted to draw out. And we'll go into this in greater detail. But she finds herself in a trash heap and this old woman puppet again they're all puppets these goblins and gremlins and whatnot but this old woman with a huge pile of trash on her back is you know piling more and more stuff on top of each other and then she opens a door and Sarah the main character walks in and finds herself in her old bedroom and gets tempted to just start living out her old life again and Again, she rejects it and the walls come crumbling down and it turns out she's still in a trash heap and it's, you know, this stuff is part of the big trash pile.
1: Yeah, the goblin is trying to pile on the stuff Mm -hmm. that she loves. Like, oh, you love this bear. And yeah, this is like trying to call on her attachment to her stuff to distract her from her actual mission to save
0: her brother. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really interesting because I don't think the film, like the film, when it ends, she comes back to her room, she does start putting some of her stuff away, but she doesn't get rid of everything. It's not necessarily about saying like, clear out everything you own, but there is a sense of an inordinate attachment to her things and being able to move past that and actually focus on, you know, the future and her the friendship she's made along the way and all of these things that, these are more important than the the toys that she's been playing with.
1: Yeah, it's the idea of I'll still need you guys sometimes, mm-hmm. but then she's also able to give her brother the bear. That him having the bear was the start of her screaming that she hated him and him being taken away by the Goblin King in the first
0: place. <laughs> yeah, and and she you know has to go through this whole maturation that she starts the film constantly and like it's almost over the top with her so cliche like it's not fair it's not fair Mm -hmm. and you know even actually the goblin king is the one who sort of draws that out and says i wonder what you're comparing it to you know what is your point of comparison for saying this isn't fair uh and yeah i think it's i love it as a film but i thought it specifically that scene in the junkyard is really telling and actually i don't know quite to me quite profound because it does show the illusion of how much we can lean on the trappings of our childhood or the, the crutch of the comfort of our material things to distract us from the greater adventure of our lives and our families and our uh, relationships and our, you know, the, the duties that we have to one another.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think to kind of draw out those two comparisons, um, particularly in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, we see a very distinct comparison between the inventor father, Correctus Potts, mm-hmm. who has this great deal of what we might otherwise have called childishness, mm. which is this whimsy and these like wonderful inventions of like a way to get dinner ready that is fully automated and looks almost like a child playing with bits and pieces and putting them together yeah. but is still also done with a purpose and with a great deal of joy brought to that yeah. and most tellingly he loves his children and is trying to be a good father. Yeah. He fails in certain ways, but he's doing it with his children and for his children. Mm. And I think that's a really interesting comparison between childlikeness mm. and childishness, that the Baron is obsessed with the trappings of childhood and hates actual children. Yeah. And the corrective pots shows us a much better image of that, which is, the whimsy of childlikeness,
0: mm-hmm.
1: without like the darker undercurrent of attachment to childish stuff specifically.
0: Yeah, I think that's so right. When you we were discussing this this morning, and Phoebe says this to me, and I'm like, oh, that's just absolutely spot on. And it's interesting because he is the main character, and he does have learning and growing to do. There's a certain level at which the children are allowed to run wild which he's sort of reprimanded for and I think there's a balance I think Mm -hmm. that he trusts them and he allows them to have a childhood and play act and but there's also a sense in which they're not getting to school and maybe they're dirty and they need a bit of a brushing up
1: and also a sense in which it's their maturity that they've had to grow because he hasn't stepped in Mm -hmm. when they're offering their stuff To help pay for financial troubles that he's having, Mm. that spark him to actually step up to that responsibility and go out and try and make that money another way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So there is kind of a balance, and again, you know, his uh, it's not really gone into, but it seems that his wife has died. There's a a romantic relationship in it. blossoming in the film as well so there's also somebody else stepping into that role for the children as well but I think what's so appealing about the Potts's family setup with him and his father and the kids all together is that they are actually all together they all enjoy inhabiting each other's space Mm. that it's a family in which the dad can totally enter into the world and perspective of his kids while like you said there is an element he has to step up and provide for them he is using his talents you know in some ways they're sort of harebrained and he may you know you could say maybe he should get a proper job but he is following the his god-given talents for inventions and sometimes they work better than others but that he is providing and yet he has that sense of keeping that joy and that time for his children and that desire to entertain them and give them magic in their lives and give them these occasions of closeness and he's very expressive with them and so as much as he's tinkering away at his toys and his inventions it's never to the total exclusion of his love for his family.
1: Yeah absolutely and I think it's also really important to differentiate in that child-likeness, there's still a love of stuff, mm-hmm. in a way. And like, I think we see this really well in our friend Maria, mm-hmm. who loves the stuff that she's able to make for her children and the world that she's able to create for them, mm-hmm. and also loves some of that stuff in its own right. Yeah. But that those two are never in tension.
0: Yeah, that there is a sense in which the Potts' family home is full of stuff. Like yeah. he, he's an inventor. And so it's not about, you know, we're going to be talking a little bit more in Labyrinth about the sort of weight of stuff that can weigh you down. But it's not necessarily all about whether you have things or have a family, but that the two go together. And that, uh, I think you brought this up, that real child likeness, which is what the gospel calls us to, is something that makes you want to be around kids. Mm -hmm. Whereas childishness, because you want your way and because you want to, like, have... In the way that a child does, have everything their own way, that leads you to reject children because they make demands. They won't conform to your will and they won't fit into the things that you want for yourself. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So I just think... It's a really interesting film. I mean, I love the the whole section with the child catcher. And oh, all it's of the...
1: the spookiest. <laughs> Didn't you say that Roald Dahl wrote that in?
0: I think he did, yeah. I find yeah, it yeah. really funny that Chili Chitty Bang Bang was written by Ian Fleming of the... Bond books fame uh, but the script was rewritten by Roald Dahl and that just feels like such a Roald Dahl point yeah you know? the minute
1: you said that I was like oh I can
0: totally see a Quentin Blake drawing of the child catching <laughs> right exactly and yeah I just think it's interesting how the way that that whole space without the kids and they have to hide down in the sewers and it's silent that's mm-hmm. the thing that uh, the main characters keep talking about like truly scrumptious and crasticus pots are they miss the sound of children it's this sort of sterile environment and it's not actually it's not full of life because literally the next generation are illegal yeah. <laughs> and uh yeah i think it it's in a lot of ways like i said in some ways i can't believe there hasn't been more people sort of aghast by this film in this day and age because to me it really directly speaks to some of the the things that have come up in our society. I there's an article that I really enjoy and it's interesting because it's not actually written from a perspective that I necessarily agree with but is called everyone needs to grow up. <laughs> and it's a very funnily written article. There's a line in it which I quote all the time where The author says that in the list of things that we see today of people being ridiculously childish, they they said specifically hitting 30 and still considering yourself precocious.
1: (laughs) Or later they referencing thinking that you can't adult today.
0: Oh um, yeah, I have to say, and my apologies to any listeners who use that term, but I really do struggle with the whole kind of, Oh, adulting and adulting is so hard. And you know, it's funny because Phoebe and I, we talk a lot about how it is actually really difficult to get your life in order and keep on top of your chores and be productive and be creative and pay attention at work and get regular exercise and get your groceries and shop seasonally and cook well and also make sure you experience some of the restaurants in the city that you live in. And You're see.
1: stressing me out with this list a lot. <laughs> so it's
0: not, it's not that these things don't require effort, but I just think... Not it, that this isn't hard. But at the same time, there's just a real sense of rejection of, in some ways, actually the gift that is adulthood mm-hmm. that... Is, I don't know it just seems so s- small and what this article talks about is like infantilizing to make it so that everything that you do as an adult is sort of a burden on you and something that you have to roll your eyes at and so it says Infantilizing yourself can often be seen like a plea for diminished responsibility. Most of us will have encountered someone who, when criticised for behaving badly, appeals to their own vulnerability as a way of letting themselves off the hook. No matter what they do or the harm they cause, it is never fair to criticise them because there is always some reason, often framed through therapy jargon or language of social justice, why it isn't their fault childishness grants them perpetual innocence. They are constitutionally incapable of being in the wrong. And I think it's interesting, like I said, this article is written from someone whose conclusion is that actually taking control of your life is the thing that needs to be done from uh, a sort of progressive, very modern point of view. And so I wouldn't necessarily agree with Everything they come to in that in that conclusion, but I think it is really interesting that you can even come to it from all sides that this is something that needs to happen.
1: Yeah, that part about it isn't fair to criticize them. It's that yeah. scream it's fair, like it isn't fair. Yeah, um, and also like the level of making excuses mm-hmm. that it's that childishness. Oh, but like I couldn't help that. Yeah, that I think we just carry over into our modern lives too much.
0: And the other part of it is this, in some ways where in Chilly Chili Bang Bang, the toys are literally big toys. They're rocking horses and dolls and puppets that are blown up to massive size. The point that this article is making is like, the, we have the toys of modernity and we have more where we lack a lot, uh, you know, certainly our generation were millennials that you can lack capital to make proper life building investments like, buying houses and things like that like in some ways those can be difficult but a lot of people have disposable income to buy almost sedative toys to amuse you while you stay in this perpetual adolescence.
1: Yeah it's the childish I want I want I want Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and yet you don't have somebody to say no to you. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, there's no parent there saying, no, you can't have that, that's not good for you. Or, we can't afford that, we need the money for this. We have to impose that on ourselves. And so many of us, myself included a lot of the time, will not put in that, "Mm, no.
0: Yeah, you don't need this, You, you can do without it.
1: Or maybe that isn't good for me right now.
0: Yeah, yeah, the article goes on to say, we will never make the world better if we act like this. Thinking of yourself as a small bean baby is a way of tapping out and expecting other people to fight on your behalf. It also makes you a more pliant consumer social media is awash with the idea that quote it's valid not to be productive as though productivity were the only manifestation of capitalism and streaming disney plus all day is a form of resistance (laughs) Uh, it's much rarer to encounter the idea that we have a responsibility about what we consume or that satisfying our own desires whenever we want is not always a good thing quote, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism, has morphed into there is no unethical consumption under capitalism. And then finally, it says, children are the perfect customers, suggestible, impulsive, driven by an insatiable and replenishable desire for pleasure.
1: Ooh, harsh. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So true. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting, we were discussing this before the Podcast, you know the the theme of this whole episode is kind of making a case for making the space for children and being pro family and all of these things. And we're speaking is to women who don't yet have kids, and uh, we live lives that are relatively free from, in many ways, a lot of responsibility. And I think it's interesting because if you listen to my women's talk from a couple of episodes back, I did make the case that sometimes life looks different for different people, even when they're following their Catholic faith, that family life might look different, that motherhood or fatherhood, or any of those things that we're just called to follow what God has in store for us. And if it doesn't look like the Joneses down the street or the picture on the internet, that that doesn't mean it's wrong for you. But at the same time, I think there's absolutely a space for people who, even people who don't have kids or may have kids in the future, but not yet, Uh, to make for standing up for the space for children in society and this vision of family in society. And I think, again, it's really telling, you know, the Pope specifically talked about this. He says, and it was very controversial, Um, he says many couples do not have children because they do not want to or only have one because they do not want others but they have two dogs two cats yes dogs and cats take the place of children yes it's funny i understand but it's reality and it's denying paternity and motherhood diminishes us and takes away our humanity and he goes on to talk about The kind of materialism of society and how we are losing our sense of civilization and what a lot of people responded to with this was this is coming from a man who chose not to have kids That like why are we listening to someone who is reprimanding our desire to keep ourselves as our primary focus when ostensibly from the outside it may look like these are people who only choose to live by themselves and have lives separate from like a regular family life but again the point is that it can look different and that we should all be supporting one another and that you know there's a reason we call them father that they are actually stepping into a father role that mm-hmm. this is not actually a denial of family life or even parental love but that it may look different, and yet we are—we should all be ordered towards the same goal.
1: Yeah, and that it's about stepping into the responsibilities that are either given to you or that are offered in some way, but you may have to seek out those opportunities a little. Mm-hmm. Like the opportunities to support your family. Mm-hmm. And for many of us, that might look like remembering to call our parents or go home to them mm-hmm. and prioritising that. Yep or making space for our friends who have children and finding ways to accommodate them in our lives and not expect them to always just accommodate us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's that kind of sense of stepping up to the plate. I think going back to Labyrinth, you mm. really see that in Sarah, that she's having to step up to the responsibility of her younger brother mm. and constantly having to step up to that and prioritize that. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily that any of the stuff she's doing is bad, except that it's been extrapolated out too far. Yeah. Like, I love the idea of a teenager in the park play acting. Like, Mm -hmm. there's something in that that really appeals to me. The point is that she's pulled that too far and is abandoning her responsibility and throwing temper tantrums.
0: Right, exactly. And that, I think it was really interesting, I read an article about Labyrinth, which was talking about it in terms of renee girard's <laughs> scapegoating idea but it makes sense because she is she's scapegoating her brother he is the source of all of her problems mm-hmm. she could live the life she wanted if she didn't have to come home and mind him that he's also the you know the product of her her father's remarriage and so is kind of representative of her being forced to uh move past the family setup that she would have wanted which is also completely understandable like you know grief is allowed and it's allowed to be difficult but uh and you know there's also kind of a suggestion in the film she says that the parents are always out and she's always having to mind him and they kind of say that they aren't i i think she's an unreliable narrator but <laughs> but there is a sense in which they're like see ya, we're off bye like yeah they are on some level divesting responsibility themselves for their own kind of personal interests yeah i think the article i think it was on Pathos that it's called you have no power over me when david bowie was satan and in brackets a tribute of sorts <laughs> but it's about this theme in, in in the film of labyrinth it says that is of course exactly the way scapegoating works People come to believe that their problems will be solved if only they could get rid of someone. The satanic principle is that the principle of accusation and blame, the lie that a person or a community can only experience peace, success, fortune or joy at the expense of someone else. It is manifested in all kinds of violence, from expulsion to murder to oppression to war. And I think that's really interesting that... Because the scene that jumped out to me was was the scene about her things, but it goes all the way back to this rejection of her brother at the very start of the film, that she just wants to be rid of that responsibility.
1: Yeah, and she wants to have her stuff for herself. Yes. That she wants to lay claim on it and not share it with the one who has the greatest right on it, being... The toddler child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's also coming back to what you were saying about making space for children, mm. I think that's part of acknowledging what is most proper to children. Mm. Like that if you've got a teddy that you really love, and you're so precious about it that you're never gonna let a child play with it. Mm. The, I think there's, I think there's a balance I think you can have antiques and things that you treasure for what they are but I also think that there's a place in which some of those things properly belong to children yeah. even though they might get damaged and scuffed and like yeah you don't want to give it to a child who's going to tear it apart or like shatter your porcelain doll sure but maybe you can give it to the girl who's going to undress it and play with it mm-hmm. and maybe it'll come back looking a little bit worse for the wear mm. but the the is that it's actually being played with
0: yeah that there is a teleos to these things yeah. that yeah that they're actually fulfilling their potential when they're being cherished by children yeah and yeah like you said i think you you can have a handful of things that are of deep sentimental value because of what they represent for your childhood uh but at the same time yeah you should always be looking for the opportunity to express the true nature of these things by having them interacted with by kids who find wonder and awe and joy in them.
1: Yeah, and to share that with them, that you're trying to bring them into that world and enter it together.
0: Yeah. And it's funny, because like you said, I, like she has this bedroom that is so 80s, but also that, you know, the 80s had that real kind of faux Victorian thing going on for a lot of that. It's so, so there's like frills and like weirdly, yeah, there's a lot of sort of medieval stuff in it as well.
1: It's gorgeous. It's,
0: it's great. I love it. I think it's so charming. But... The, the point is is that, yeah, can you have these things in moderation? Can you enjoy them without letting them dominate your life? And can you enjoy them to the proper am- amount and not have that enjoyment exclude the joy where they were originally found, which was in interacting th- with them as kids and with kids?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And there's that super famous C.S. Lewis quote. Maybe, Phoebe, you want to go Of for course,
1: that? I'll read the Lewis. Critics who treat adult as a term of approval, instead of merely a descriptive term, cannot be adults themselves. To be concerned about being grown up, to admire the grown up, because it is grown up, (laughs) to blush at the suspicion of being childish. These are the marks of childhood and adolescence. In childhood and adolescence, they are, in moderation, healthy symptoms. Young things ought to want to grow. But to carry on into middle life, or even into early manhood, this concern about being adult is a mark of really arrested development. When I was 10, I read fairy tales in secret and would have been ashamed if I'd been found doing so. Now that I'm 50, I read them openly. When I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the desire to be very grown up.
0: Yeah, I think that's so key that... That's where the balance comes in that you can properly enjoy things of your childhood when you're an adult, but it has to be in this this rightly ordered sense in which you are both acknowledging that they are of childhood and yet at the same time having a sense of both detachment and love for these things.
1: Yeah, and like you can really imagine Lewis and that with the evacuee kids Mm. when they were staying with him in sharing that joy of fairy tales with them and even writing, starting Narnia because of that. Yeah. That the two things like feed into each other and his love of fairy tales as a childish thing feeds into his love of children.
0: Yeah. That. He can, he can actually have relationships with individual children exactly. and enjoy their company and see the goodness that God... I mean, you know, there's so many quotes from the Bible of Jesus saying, you need to, like, bring the children to me. You need to be like little children. These are things that are fundamental to our faith.
1: Yeah, we could even read a quote from Scripture, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, I suppose we could do that.
1: Um, Yeah, I thought there was a really interesting dichotomy in Luke chapter 18 is um, the part about let the children come to me and truly I tell you anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So there's this demand on us to be childlike in a sense and return to that wonder and sense of being children But at the same time, St. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Mm. And another part, he talks about the need to go on to solid food rather than milk and to actually grow up in our thinking and in our faith and establish these things. So I think Mm. it's the two things in tension Mm -hmm. that there's the good of childhood that we're in danger of losing as we grow up that we constantly need to return to yeah, and also the bad things of childhood that a good parent will train their child out of like the temper tantrums Mm -hmm. that we also need to grow up out of.
0: Yeah absolutely and I think just to go back to Labyrinth for a minute just talking about that scene with the I think I think her name is the the garbage lady or the junkyard lady. Yeah, that works. But just that scene where they she starts piling up all of her trinkets and her stuffed animals on top of her, and it does just feel like she's being buried in this kind of wash of all of her things and being distracted by it. And uh, this article I, I, I came across, which is, it's called You Remind Me of the Babe with the Power. <laughs> Um, And it's actually talking about how Labyrinth kind of redefined the portrayal of young girls in fantasy movies which I think is an interesting interesting take but It talks about this scene saying uh, as the mountain of Sarah's toys grows around her, she suddenly discovers that all of these items are meaningless to her. They can't have any real deep connection with her, unlike her family and friends who actually care for her. Her toys are simply rubbish, distracting her from what is really important in her life. She finally confirms this notion by declaring, it's all junk. I have to save Toby. When she gives this cry, her bedroom walls crumble around her and she finds herself at the entrance of the Goblin City, continuing on the right path. By letting go of her invaluable possessions, Sarah grows into a more confident person because she no longer relies on materialistic needs to make her feel better about herself. And as we've kind of mentioned before, the ending of the film, in some ways you can see it slightly undercuts it. She does start putting her things away, but she then kind of calls out to these... I, you know, you wonder, imaginary? are Were they real uh, uh, friends that she's made along the way in the Goblin City and says that, you know... That were
1: already represented by toys in her room, so there's a link between the two.
0: Yeah, and she says... She says something like that I do think it would be okay if I sometimes called out to you or like checked in with you and they say yes and then they end up she goes well why don't why don't we come now and they all have like a big party in her room and you know obviously there's a sense there in which she's still asking for help and still being frivolous and having you know like all of these big imaginary or fantasy creatures having a big party in her room but at the same time you can sense that she is actually excited about the future, that she does want to go forward. And yes, she will, like Lewis, occasionally dip back into these things of childhood or find comfort or reliance in them, but she's not, she doesn't want to just stay there. And that's the difference.
1: And also that it's a sense of friendship and belonging Mm -hmm. that she's going to them for. And that you get the sense that that will then extrapolate out into her everyday life. Yeah, rather than alone in the park, play acting.
0: Yeah, and um,
1: like there's such a dichotomy between like the, her her being alone mm-hmm. and her isolation, and she's kind of isolating herself with these things and protecting herself, rather than actually engaging in friendship, and. Along the way, having to learn to forgive and to make those connections.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so right. And it was funny. This is a very <laughs> interesting element to then draw in from all of these sort of family films that we're talking about. It reminded me a little bit of the Love Song of Jail for Proofrock.
1: We had to go highbrow.
0: <laughs> right. So let's go to a T.S. Eliot poem just for a minute. And it's funny because it's not necessarily that those <laughs> that that poem is very similar to either of those films but there is this sense in in the poem that he keeps piling up all of these details of afternoon teas and blouses and coats and ices and all of these very frivolous things and it these things are constantly interwoven with this real sense of lack of certainty and surety of oneself and like the fear of really making a connection with someone and expressing your feelings and being stuck in this perpetual cycle and it you know I did actually come across an article which was talking about this poem and the sort of millennial experience and it. it says nowhere does Proofrock sound more modern in his continual insistence that there will be time this is what all single men and women tell themselves so they can stretch out their adolescence again and again this eventually causes their initial indecision to deepen their permanent indecisiveness a hundred indecisions and I think yeah,
1: You should read that actual line.
0: Yeah I'll, 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 yeah, I'll read out a little bit of the poem. My problem with reading out the poem is that I always want to read out maybe about a third of it at a time. But yeah, here's some lines from the poem that I think kind of elucidate that, where it says, And indeed there will be time For the yellow smoke that slides along the street Rubbing its back upon the window panes There will be time To prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet There will be time to murder and create and time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you and time for me and time yet for a hundred indecisions, for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. (laughs) And later he says, time to turn back and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. They will say how his hair is growing thin. My morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest but asserted with a simple pin, they will say but how his arms and legs are thin. Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute there is time for decisions and revisions which a minute will reverse. For I have known them all already, known them all, have known the evenings, mornings, afternoons. I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. And then maybe finally I'll read just a little bit more and the afternoon the evening sleep so peacefully smoothed by long fingers asleep tired rhythm lingers stretched on the floor here beside you and me should i after teas and cakes and ices have the strength to force the moment to its crisis but though i have wept and fasted wept and prayed though i have seen my head grown slightly bald Brought in upon a platter. I am no prophet, and here's no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker. I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker. And in short, I was afraid. So good. It's amazing. And I think it's maybe a slightly oblique reference, but I just have this sense it's almost like the junkyard that Sarah's in. All of these details of these cushions and coats and all of these things that he's kind of hiding himself in and letting go on and on and on in this sense of uh, indecisiveness which keeps you in a sense stage of adolescence without forcing you to ever take accountability or responsibility for your life that he's stuck in this do I dare disturb the universe? No, let me be. I'll be comfortable with all of my things and I'll be comfortable with my lack of responsibility and I'll, I'll, I won't i will face the rejection or face the the demands that going further might make of me.
1: Yeah, and that that is then holding him back from actually living out his life and mm-hmm. living up to that potential. Yeah. That you say he's not proposing to the woman that he loves yeah. because he's afraid and caught up in all these trappings that he's not putting himself out there and daring to step forward mm-hmm. because he constantly retreats into comfort. Yeah. How true of that is? like how true is that for all of us? Yeah. Like constantly retreating into comfort spaces and not even realising that we're failing to push ourselves out.
0: Yeah.
1: Going back to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was thinking that It's really interesting that the Baron's downfall is caused by his childishness. That those two things are inextricably linked. Like, he throws such a temper tantrum about wanting the car, Mm -hmm. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, that he kidnaps the grandfather without expecting anyone to come and rescue him like Mm. he's not thinking that somebody else will step up to the adult thing to do and rescue the grandfather Right, and that act of the family group coming to rescue their grandfather starts the downfall of Bulgaria Mm. and again when he's throwing his big party it's the puppets which are actually cracked as pots and truly scrumptious that like his love of those childish things and his fascination with them lets that weakness into the house mm. that that's their way to get in and then start this chaos that ends up with them like pinned to the ceiling screaming yeah you know
0: and the kids running wild <laughs> all over the exactly the and
1: the noise back again
0: yeah right yeah i think that's that's totally right that yeah that it comes from the family loyalty and the sense of duty and responsibility to go and go on this madcap adventure to save their grandpa that is the beginning of all of this.
1: Yeah, and that the childishness of temper tantrums and wanting things that he shouldn't want anymore, mm-hmm. in a sense, that he should be prioritising other stuff, like that desire to have a puppet that is his size, yeah. not a child's size, Yeah, is part of what leads to his downfall.
0: Mm. Yeah, I love it. And I think that's where the two films kind of mesh Mm -hmm. together, this materialism, this consumerism that holds you back from achieving the better things that God has planned for you. And that, like we said, that God has given us the things of childhood to enjoy and to enjoy past childhood to the extent in which they are good and wholesome and appropriate. And yet that there is more to be asked of us.
1: Yeah, and I think it's particularly applicable coming up to Christmas, Mm -hmm. where we're all, I think, getting more obsessed with the presents that we get Mm -hmm. and asking ourselves that question of am I treating this like a grown-up toy?
0: Yeah, and I think that's interesting because I think there's two elements here where we're talking about some of the things of childhood, which we keep into adulthood. Maybe that's, like we were saying, uh, uh, an over interest in things like disney or any of those things or maybe it might literally be toys that you still have from childhood like i said i do think that there are appropriate expressions of this yeah i mean we
1: both still have toys from childhood both still really enjoy watching disney movies without any kids
0: yeah um but yeah this kind of over reliance on them but then there's also the version of it which is taking the trappings of adulthood and treating them as toys.
1: Yeah, exactly. That
0: I think you pulled out the the quote from Brideshead Revisited. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I was thinking it was a really interesting comparison in a way. We've talked about Brideshead Revisited before, but while there in college and having all this fun, he says, It seemed to me that I grew younger daily with each adult habit that I acquired. I had lived a lonely childhood and a boyhood straitened by war and overshadowed by bereavement. To the hard bachelordom of England adolescence, to the premature dignity and authority of the school system, I had added a sad and grim strain of my own. Now that summer term with Sebastian, it seemed as though I was being given a brief spell of that which I had never known, a happy childhood. And though it's toys were silk shirts and liqueurs and cigars and it's naughtiness high in the catalogue of grave sins, there was something of nursery freshness about us that fell little short of the joy of innocence. Mm. And it's a beautiful quote. I think it's really challenging Mm
0: -hmm.
1: because obviously in this situation he's enjoying that freedom that he hasn't had before yeah but it also has fairly serious repercussions down the line yeah and there should have been a better way to do that
0: and also that again it really ties into and we probably can't go into too many details of this it feels like it could be its own episode but in in that experience of bride's head there's the there's charles who's able to have that experience and while he grieves it passing and moving on to other things in his life and not to say that he carries out those things in his life particularly better either but it's Sebastian who gets stuck and can't cope with having to try and leave that space Mm -hmm. and so again we get into this question of what's appropriate and now obviously anything that's high in the catalogue of grave sins is never appropriate but again that there are the joys of adulthood that are slightly different to the joys of childhood but again that they should be regulated within a properly ordered life and one that is moving towards better things and i think chesterton talks a lot about uh how the young having fun well they they will always have fun in their own way, and that a modern girl will have a uh, modern fun and but that's not really any different to a Victorian fun that the young Victorians had, and that yeah, that is actually just he he's he's talking about how uh, in reality the real fun is the topsy turvy dumb of family life of home life, and that actually this external world of parties and bars and going out socialising, all of these things actually follow very regimented patterns and look surprisingly similar from age to age and within each age everyone acts in similar ways when they're doing these things and yes there is a good in them, he's not dismissing that, I think he was a great man for socialising Chesterton, but that we shouldn't mistake that for the true freedom that comes from a good and wholesome family life, which is kind of what we see in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, that sense of topsy turvy and their own particular way of doing things and their own whimsies and their own fun.
1: Yeah, it's that idea that the out- fun of the outer world still subscribes to a pattern and kind of makes everybody the same, mm-hmm. whereas the topsy turvy of home life allows you to be unique. Yeah. And to actually revel in that uniqueness and choose your own ways of doing things.
0: Yeah. He says the pursuit of fashion is merely the pursuit of convention, only that it happens to be a new convention. The jazz dances, the joy rides, the big pleasure parties and hotel entertainments do not make any more provision for a really independent taste than any of the fashions of the past. If a wealthy young lady wants to do what all the other wealthy young ladies are doing, she will find it great fun, simply because youth is fun and society is fun. But he goes on to say that the Duchess will find it easier to practice leapfrog to the admiration of her intimate friends in the oak-panelled hall of Fitzdragon Castle. If the Dean must stand on his head, he will do it with more ease and grace in the calm atmosphere of the Deanery than by attempting to interrupt the programme of some social entertainment already organised for philanthropic purposes. (laughs) (laughs) But the sense that, yeah, that at home we find true acceptance and freedom and ability to be childish in that sense or childlike Mm -hmm. in that sense without shirking the responsibilities that come with it as well
1: yeah it's the things that are appropriate for home that aren't appropriate for society
0: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah And that so much of the fun comes in finding whether it is a family life or at least, uh, as he mentions there, like a group of intimate friends where you can let your guard down and enjoy frivolities in a way that is much more um, enlivening when you're with people who have that love for you. Mm -hmm. And so it gives you that space to properly enjoy the things of childhood.
1: Yeah, and that there's always that boundary of home around them that it's the intimate friends in an area where they feel safe
0: Mm -hmm. they're
1: in the castle like yeah they're not out and about at the party
0: yeah because social convention would require you to act more act in line even if even if you're not saying act more responsibly but like if you're out at a party you might be expected to get drunker than you would like or you might be expected to act more gossipy than you would like Mm, you know that yeah that when we have the correctly ordered space it will induce a level of fun and childhoodness that is not in contradiction with our, our the path that god has called us to
1: it's such a good topic. We're going to have to talk about it more another time. I think so, <laughs> so yeah. Well, hopefully,
0: yeah. Hopefully, like I said, in some ways it feels a little bit of a hodgepodge, you know, like bringing these two films together and then throwing Bride's Head and T.S. Eliot on top of it. But hopefully... Well, you know, I'm making the Christmas cake at the moment, so it's a little bit like that. Just
1: chuck it all in and it'll <laughs> turn out well.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I think that's our episode for today. Uh, all that's left to say is, Phoebe, what are you enjoying at the moment? Oh, dear. <laughs> You forgot about this but didn't you?
1: Um, mm, somewhat. I was reading a book called The Girl of the Limberlost. Sorry, Girl of the Limberlost. And it was recommended along with a couple of books for like, maybe like 12 to 16 year old girls that mm-hmm. I really liked, like Anne of Green Gables and what Katie did. And I was like, oh, I've never heard of that one before. So I went and looked it up, um, had a lot of fun. It's set very close to where we were in Chicago, Mm -hmm. which was also lots of fun, and really delves into the idea of nature and being allowed to become your own person and some of the challenges that go along with just modern life and stepping up to the plate and learning to forgive others. She's got the girl in the question has a really difficult mother Mm -hmm. that she has to learn to forgive. It's just a lovely book, so yeah, would recommend.
0: Wonderful. Uh, I think there's kind of been a lot of things that I've been enjoying at the moment. I could pick out a lot of things from our trip to Chicago. I've been listening to a lot of new music and watching some new films. I think I will pick out one of the albums that I've been listening to. Uh, It's the type of album that I may return to for an episode so thanks to Shane and Robin for encouraging me to listen to it. It's by an artist called Typhoon who they had previously introduced me to but I hadn't listened to this specific album and the album name is Offerings. It's quite a dark album, I don't think it's for everyone but it is quite powerfully about exploring the journey that that the artist goes on through a member of his family getting dementia.
1: Ooh, interesting.
0: And so it is in that way it is dark, like it is not shying away from that being a difficult, painful experience, but the whole album is about this, you know, this idea of the things that you give up at the end will be the hardest and they might be, you know, including your mind. Mm. And it's uh yeah, I found it incredibly moving and interesting and yeah i think that's what i will recommend for this episode maybe a bit of a left turn from chitty chitty bang bang labyrinth <laughs> but sure you know get variety in there uh but yeah okay so i think that is all we have to cover for today uh thanks very much for listening if you want to follow us you can find the podcast on instagram it's at risking enchantment podcast you can also sign up to our newsletter which is on rachelsherlock.com. sherlock.com uh, And you can find the podcast there at forward slash podcast. And you can reach out to us. We've had a couple of people get in touch with us again. It's always lovely to hear from everyone. And again, yeah, just thanks very much for listening. And we will be back soon. Goodbye. Goodbye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.